and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Come on by the shop, um, grab yourself a root beer float, hang around, um, and maybe become a member. Uh, so today is Friday. It's Friday morning. Um, I'm back from Oklahoma. Uh, it was a it was a lovely trip, uh, salt of the earth, and. I had to learn to explain why I hadn't been to Oklahoma too many times. And, and the honest answer is part of, at least the sort of part of the honest answer is that, um, when we do our tr- cross country drives, we've done so many of, if you're going to go to Oklahoma, it kind of also means you have to go basically through the midsection of Texas. And as God is my witness, I, don't, I never want to do that drive again. Um, you know, there are only like three States that can kick your butt on a drive without ever leaving the state. One is that waistband of Texas where like the, the, I can never remember which cities they are, but like the easternmost city of Texas is like closer to New York than it is to the westernmost city of Texas. And the westernmost city of Texas is closer to like LA than it is the easternmost city of Texas. And it's just a brutal, brutal drive, particularly if it's a summer drive. It's like, you know, um, you know, you better just hope your car doesn't break down kind of drive. And, um, and that's the only way I'd sort of get to Oklahoma. I've been there. I've driven through there once or twice. Also, Oklahoma is just not a great place in the summertime as far as I'm concerned. But then again, that's more on me. Um, but really had a lovely time. Great people. So, um, and it's also very nice to be home. Um, speaking of long drives, my wife leaves tomorrow. She volunteered to drive my, her sister's dog to their place in Utah. So I'm going to be alone here with a daughter for about a week. And um, we're just strange, strange people, the Goldbergs. So um, where to begin? I'm trying to, I'm trying to forestall getting into a rant. We'd, the drive time format will be back. Um, but with Nick gone, um, we want to have start thinking more holistically about what that format will look like who will be participating in it, when, when we'll do it, when we won't do it. We, we need rules and strictures and whatnot. And we did a couple in a row because of Nick's departure. And so we figured we'd just do this solo thing again. Um, although I, you know, I'm kicking myself because I've been meaning to mention this for like almost a year now. Um, as some people out there know, one of the things I will often do is, um, write the G file in my car. And in fact, the first solo remnants, we called them the smoking car podcasts because I also did the remnants from my car. And, um, uh, and so I'll go off and park someplace with the right shade and, uh, smoke a cigar and just power through a G file. And, uh, one of the places I go is this covered parking lot in a, sort of a strip mall area near my, my local Safeway because it's really well ventilated, but it's also well, it's also protected from the sun. So you don't get, you don't heat up. You don't, uh, get, uh, blinded by the sun or sun on the screen of your computer or whatever. And so I hang out there and I smoke cigars with the top down on my convertible and, 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 and write. And, and, uh, anyway, 
turns out that over the last year, um, and really the last, uh, extensively for the last six months or so, um, other people do this too, but they don't do it with, um, cigars. Some smoke cigarettes and quite a few people, uh, smoke pot or Mary Jane or ganja, you know, and, uh, um, there's one dude who often will park like three spaces down from me and there'll be a rotating group of people who will be in his car and then they'll all get out at the same time and they'll walk around back of the garage and hang out at the top of this little little trail in the woods and then come back through a big cloud of smoke with a bong in their hands. And the guy who drives this car um, looks exactly like Nick Pompella. And it's just very, very weird. And, um, uh, and I was just like constantly wanted to give Nick a hard time about it and kept forgetting to. So anyway, with that little slice of life, I, I'm, what I'm actually trying to do is trying to forestall, um, going off on a, on a pretty deep rant because I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of worked up about something. Um, um, I read this piece in the New York times this morning. Uh, this essay by a transgender man, you know, so used to be a woman and, um, you know, and I'm, I'm conflicted on some of the transgender stuff because in general, I, I really passionately believe you should treat individual people with respect. And if they want to be referred to in a certain way, if it's, if it, if it causes you no harm, um, and it is not some grand sacrifice or something, then there, then you should just because of good manners do that. So I know some transgender people and I, you know, and they used to be male and now they're female and I refer to them as women and I have no problem doing that because that's just a matter of social graces and whatnot. Um, and I, at the same time, I'm just laying my cards out. Um, I think a lot of the transgender stuff is essentially a psychological contagion. I'm not saying it's not true of some people. Um, I do not believe, I mean, I don't know what the latest count is, but what, like 10 years ago, Facebook listed something like 58 different genders. I think that's nonsense. I think it's just absolute nonsense. I really do. Um, and you know, there are, there, you know, I'm totally open to the idea that there are people who have, you know, conflicting views about or different views about their identity and all that kind of stuff. But at the very least it's nonsense insofar as that's not grounded in some sort of objective, medical, scientific, genetic, congenital, any of those kinds of things condition that is, um, uh, idea that has moved mimetically among people to, um, and then people embrace it. That doesn't make it, you know, people embrace all sorts of ideas that doesn't make that identity illegitimate, by the way. You know, I mean, religion is the, in some ways, you know, the embrace of a set of a set of ideas about the world, about the universe, about God. Um, you're not born, um, with a specific theological point of view who you, you know, you can be raised in it. You can be indoctrinated into it but it doesn't come in your genes. It's something, you know, it's an idea. So all I'm saying is, is that, you know, we used to have these big arguments about whether homosexuality was, uh, you know, genetic or, or cultural. And, um, and I don't know where exactly those debates lie 
with the whole phenomenon of transgender, but I um, certainly, you know, the 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 58 or 56 gen- different gender stuff, that strikes me as almost entirely, or I should say entirely cultural. And, um, and it doesn't mean it's not sincerely held or any of that kind of stuff. I'm trying not to be, I'm trying to bend over backwards here to be, um, you know, to have, 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 you know, some humility and some compassionate imagination here. But that said, uh, the contortions that the entire society is being asked to go through to accommodate the feelings of transgender people, I think is indefensible. And so there's this piece in the New York times today where this guy, um, uh, he writes about what it's like to be transgender. And I'll read you a paragraph. He says, we are all of us in a constant stage of negotiation with the political and cultural forces attempting to shape us into simple translatable packages. I'm not sure I believe that, but we'll get back to that. Anyway, he says, trans people by necessity are more aware of these forces, that fluency is a strength, and it has afforded us an opportunity to question the stories about the, quote, biology of gender that are so foundational to American culture. Okay, pause here. The stories about the biology of gender are foundational to pretty much every existing culture in the entire world. Um, This idea that we are so, like, hidebound when we to these sort of weird myths about biology or gender roles or any of that kind of stuff is the kind of thing that people say when they want to dunk on the United States of America without knowing anything about any other countries. It's just garbage. Okay. I'm sorry, but that's not even the part I'm mad about. Do we all really want to co-sign the notion that a uterus and thus reproductive potential is how we define womanhood? When a non-binary person births a child, why must the birth certificate dictate that the person who gave birth is a quote-unquote mother? And what does being a quote-unquote mother even mean exactly? What might it mean for all parents if quote-unquote mother and quote-unquote father were not such distinct categories in child-rearing? Who benefits from their continuing separation? Okay, so all that stuff I said, trying to be charitable and, and, and compassionate and, and, and empathetic, that's all true. And I really do feel all that stuff. I also think this is one of the most sand-poundingly stupid things I have read in a really long time. And one of the things that infuriates me about this kind of stuff is this cultural pose. You know, this is on the op-ed page, or now the essay page, of the New York Times. The people who say this stuff, and this person's not alone, it's all over the place, and not just this kind of stuff, but the people who say this stuff work from this legitimately bought on the cheap. You know, it's kind of like a stolen base where we are supposed to be deferential to these kinds of ideas because we're told that they're smart and they're insightful when they really are incredibly stupid. Not a little stupid, not slightly wrong, just profoundly ignorant and stupid. And, you know, just to be bipartisan about this, I often would feel this way about, you know, when people would try to tell me how brilliant Donald Trump was. Um, you know, I mean, my, my favorite example is still the Jack Watt at, at American Greatness who insisted on trying to persuade the world that 
Trump's butt tweet uh, kofefe was really a, you know, uh, a, a um, dog whistle to the supporters of freedom throughout the Middle, Middle East because the non-existent word kofefe shares some consonants with some other word in Arabic or something like that. Um, but there should be a German word for this, 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 what, this delta, this lacuna, this chasm between the pose of intelligence, the pose of, of philosophical or intellectual sophistication, and the just simple stupidity of, of an argument. Um, you know, and I, and I mean stupidity, you know, this is like a pinata. You can bash it from any angle and you'll get some reward insofar as this is dumb politically. It's dumb culturally. I think I argue, I will argue in a moment, it is bad for trans people to be doing this stuff. Um, and, uh, and there's no good reason for it. So first of all, like the word mother, okay? Mother is a concept that, and feel free to fact check me on it. Mother is, an, a con is a concept that is deeply rooted in many languages and civilizations. It is a concept dearly held by many people. Um, it is one of these, you know, Heidegger writes about how, like, there are certain metaphors that define a whole modes of thinking. And he talks about light being one of these big ones, how we illuminate an idea, how we live in darkness and all these kinds of things. And it's, it's one of the more interesting parts of Heidegger. If you can, if you can get through Heidegger, who's among the worst writers in the world. True story, or at least it was told to me as a true story. Uh, when Heidegger was all the rage, um, the French hermeneuticists and existentialists um, were in love with Heidegger, but they couldn't understand some of his stuff because his sentences would awful, often, often go on for like at paragraph length and then not really kind of end. They would just sort of wander off like a patient from an old age home into the snow. And um, it would drive you crazy trying to figure out what the hell he was saying. And so what the French did is they like translated him into English and then the English into French and then the French back into German, hoping that that process would like make it make more sense. Anyway, enough about Heidegger. Sorry about that. Um, Mother is one of these things like light. You know, I would argue even more than light that is embedded in our conceptions of who we are and how the world works. Um, let's start with the actual word mother. Uh, you know, it, it's fascinating. If you, if you look around, you'll find that there are a, like a gazillion unrelated languages where the word mother and father sound really similar to mother and father in English or Spanish or, 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 or German, you know, sort of ma-pa or uh, mama, dada, papa, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, Mutter in German, madre in Spanish. Um, and uh, I think it was John McWhorter who first explained how, at least part of why this is the case, is that when you're a baby, um, a newborn baby or a freshly minted baby, um, and you start vocalizing the way our mouths work is that the first sounds you make tend to be the mama mama sound. Um, and it doesn't mean like we're hardwired with the word mama as, you know, at the analog for mother. Um, it just means that like 
when we're spewing gibberish, those are among the first sounds we make. And when you first make sounds, a mother will give you a positive reaction to it. And in all likelihood, the mother is the first person who's going to see this, particularly, you know, in evolutionary times, you know, when you're living in a cave and, you know, dad's off hunting mastodon um, and you're home in the cave nursing a newborn baby. So the reaction from the mother reinforces the sound mama and it becomes associated with mother. Um, and similarly, as you, the baby gets a little older and a little more developed, one of the second or tertiary sounds that babies start to make are sounds like ba 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 or ba 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 ba, and that gets associated with with father. Now, obviously, it's a feedback loop, right? It's a catalytic thing because you also have words that are associated with it, and they kind of bend together. And you say, "Oh, he's so brilliant, my you know little uh, you know you know little Aruk the Destroyer." Um, he's so sophisticated. He already knows the words for mother and father and, and you want to hear what you want to hear, but it's, it, it's part of the explanation for why mother and father are these concepts all around the globe, um, or these words that are similar all around the globe. The reason why the concepts mother and father are, are concepts all around the world is because according to everything we know about biology, there's a thing called a mother and there's a thing called a father. This is just basic science a biological father and a biological mother and the idea that it's super sophisticated to question that offends me you know we're, you know uh, for most of my life until fairly recently you know it was a stock way for liberals to make fun of conservatives by saying oh you guys are creationists you guys don't believe in evolution i remember the new republic would routinely i got you know these calls would routinely go around calling you know, conservatives just asking them, do you believe in evolution? Um, because they wanted to do this sort of gotcha thing. I believe in evolution, right? I mean, I think there are lots of questions left about evolution, but I believe in evolution. Um, and I wrote a whole book premised, you know, that would makes no sense without evolution. Um, and the idea that you can believe in evolutionary theory at all, at all, and not have some basic comprehension that there is such a thing grounded in nature as a mother and such a thing grounded as nature in nature as a father is ludicrous. And, um, you know, like it is one of these, I mean, like it, it's amazing how every new wave of fashionable intellectual radicals think they are doing something new and exciting that has never been done before in the way they argue about things. Um, you know, for, you know, so this guy says, uh, you know, why must the birth certificate dictate the person who gave birth to a, you know, scare quotes mother. And what does being a quote unquote mother even mean exactly? Um, and this, like, this was an old trick when Marxists were doing it in the thirties, Never mind the radicals in the 1960s. Never mind the Jacobins in the 17, you know, 90s. It's, you know, you say, you know, really, really. And, and what is a brick after all? You know, why must we, you know, be, you know, confined or constrained by the linguistic traditions of our forebears? You know, why, what is a spoon? You know, who are we to say this is a spoon and that's not a spoon? This is such an old egghead trick. It's so dumb. And the problem is, is that it appeals to some people because the question never occurred to people. And 
we have this weird thing in our heads that if we if, if a question never occurred to you, there's this momentary sort of benefit of the doubt we give it where we think, oh, that must be a really interesting question. No one else is asking questions like this. And it takes a certain amount of self-confidence and reserve and, and patience to say, hey, wait a second. This is an incredibly stupid question. The reason why it's never occurred to me to ask, really, what is a spoon after all? Is because I know one when I see one because I define a spoon by the by the by the the, you know, the utility that it provides in scooping things and 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 it's not but my my, my only point is it's it's not clever as for mother and father the idea that these things have no basis in nature or objective reality is a con job it's nonsense. And okay, so that's just, I mean, I, I, I really don't want to, I, I resent having to belabor the point, but let me just assert it flat out as an epistemological, ontological, existential, factual thing. There is a, is grounded in nature and science and fact and history, an identity to mother and father that is not entirely malleable by silly word games. And that cannot be entirely erased by silly word games. That doesn't mean we don't add new and extra meanings onto these things. That's fine to be sure. You know, I mean, mother of all battles is a, you know, is, is a fun use of the word mother. That's okay. But, um, uh, mothers exist there, even if they are social constructions, which they are not, um, there's an enormous amount of cultural and intellectual and philosophical and lingui linguistic uh, investment, sunk costs in that social construction. And, you know, there's, there's this thing, which a lot of people on the right like to do now too, is just say, they think if they call something a social construction, that therefore it is arbitrary and meaningless and deserving of no respect. And that's really stupid too. There are lots of things that are social construction. The value of money is a social construction. Um, the fact that red lights mean stop and green lights mean go is a social construction. If it wasn't, if, if, if calling it something a social construction meant trans, you know, made it mean that it was utterly worthless of respect or legitimacy, why don't we do this? Why don't we, without any for, without any warning, warning whatsoever, why don't we just change all traffic lights so that green now means stop and red means go. Um, and you know, within 24 hours, you will discover that just simply because something is a social construction or a social convention um, doesn't mean it isn't worthy of respect or doesn't mean it isn't part of, of, of a, an, an actual reality. So even if this guy were absolutely right, that there is no grounding in nature um, for the concept of mother and father, which he's, again, absolutely wrong on fundamentally wrong on but even if you're absolutely correct willy-nilly just saying okay that social construction is now henceforth meaningless let's move on to something more inclusive is what could wreak havoc is dumb is not worth it which leads me to the politics of this stuff um look i, I tried to read i, I was going to write about some of this stuff yesterday 
um, because I find I know it's a tiny thing, and and I think longtime listeners know that I am trying really hard not to do some of the stuff that is the most enjoyable stuff, which is pick on these little examples of things and blow them up way out of proportion. Um, and, and, you know, basically the writing equivalent of, of Twitter combat. So Biden's budget has, uh, the, replaces the word mother with birthing person. And, uh, not throughout, but in like one specific section, and then it falls back another gendered language later, and it's all convoluted and confusing. And you know, my basic point is is that this is just really, really, really stupid politically. Um, you know, it's 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 manna from heaven for talk radio hosts. It is grist for twenty five different Fox and Friends segments, and you know, tweets from all the usual suspects. And what does it buy you? Are transgender men who are pregnant really such a huge constituency that it is worth doing that? My hunch, and what do I know? My hunch is no. Um, but the idea that this, I, this, this basic thing, which is what this guy is basically writing about in the Times, this basic idea that society in, in an effort to be inclusive and compassionate and um, um, and more decent and all these kinds of things needs to bend concepts like mother and father to uh, make to to make these people feel more welcome in the world is lunacy to me. And again, I'm I, I'm happy for these people to be more welcome in the world. I don't want to. I, I I don't like I don't like bullies. I don't like cruelty. I don't like any of that stuff. Um, I think everyone should be treated with respect and whatnot. But the, the basic argument, like so many of these arguments, boils down to um, uh, it's triggering. Although apparently now, according to some new texts, you're not allowed to say the word triggering. Um, because to say that something might trigger you is to trigger people about being triggered, which is triggering. Um, I'm just really glad Roy Rogers' horse isn't alive to see any of this. But um, where was I? Yeah, so this idea of being... Um, of, of, of rewriting some, the, some fundamental concepts of our civilization and of, and of all civilizations to accommodate people, to make them feel a little more comfortable is based on this idea that their feelings trump everybody else's feelings. And I just don't see it. I don't see it as a utilitarian thing. Right. I mean, like what, by what right do, um, let's, let's be generous and say 1% of the American people, by what right do 1% of the American people um, impose their linguistic, um, their cultural norms on 99% of the people um, for the benefit of their feelings? And, you know, and look, I mean, in, you know, we didn't change concepts of mother and father for orphans. You know, imagine how much it hurt the feelings of some, you know, little Oliver Twist kid who was an orphan when you started talking about mother and father or mother's and father's day or all these kinds of things. I mean, it seems to me like, like their feelings matter too, but we didn't do it because the simple fact is, is that it, these are terms that have meaning in the world and they, 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 um, don't have to be thrown overboard simply because of somebody else's feelings. Um, and when there was this skyrocketing, uh, 
growth in out of wedlock children. We did play a lot of word games back then, starting in the you know in the eighties and nineties, or really even with the Moynihan report in the sixties, um, where you know we tried to come up with uh, different ways of describing families and and all these kinds of things. And some I thought were fine, and some I thought were stupid, and all that kind of stuff. But what you know what we didn't do is we didn't get rid of the concept of mother. And, you know, even though, so there are all these single mothers out there who are doing the work of both father and mother, but we still call them single mothers. We didn't call them unitary parental authorities or anything like that. Um, because it turns out that most mothers, I would like to say the vast majority of mothers are quite proud to call themselves mothers. And the idea that somehow we should turn mother, mother, mother into a term of oppression or bigotry or exclusion is culturally and scientifically idiotic, but it's also politically idiotic. I mean, really, I mean, you know, do you think whoever put that, I'm, I'm sure Biden didn't do it, but whoever put that thing in the Biden budget about birthing persons, do they think that like the average African-American mom or grandmom um, wants to call themselves a birthing person. And besides, when you reduce mothers to birthing people, that is more hands made, handmaid's taily than anything conservatives do, right? I mean, the, the general rap on conservatives for a gazillion years is in the whole premise of like the hands made, handmaid's tale vision of things is that women should just be breeders, that they should just be reduced to their reproductive um, function. Well, what the hell other meaning than birthing person um, is there than that, right? It's reducing the entire process of being a mother to being just someone who has, you know, as this guy puts it, a uterus. Um, and that's, that's insane. It's just dumb. And like, you really think it's going to win you more votes in the Latino community, not the Latinx community, the Latino community or the Hispanic community? You know, try selling that at a black church on Sunday. Um, try selling that at any church on Sunday, you know, you know, except maybe, I don't know, the Unitarian church in Burlington or something like that. It's just, it's so politically dumb and it just gets at this more fundamental point, you know, where that in any free society, the majority, majorities owe minorities respect, toleration, um, and, and certain inalienable rights. And fortunately, a lot of that's written into the structure of our constitution. So we don't have to count on people doing that without backup. But regardless, in any free and decent society, that's how it should work. It should also work the other way that minorities, I don't mean black and brown people, I mean numerical minorities of any definition, owe respect and deference to the majority culture. Because it just as a, you know, as a simple utilitarian matter, if you're talking about people's sensibilities, there's no reason to, to privilege the sensibilities of a hyper-politicized, hyper-offended, you know, uh, tiny minority over the sensibilities of a massive majority. You know, who says that their feelings matter more than, than my feelings or your feelings? You know, if we're just talking about people's feelings, why is it worth destroying the word mother and father for the benefit of a minuscule number of people who are going to find something else to complain about in the way our society is structured? Because the way our society is structured, 
as modern and as progressive as we are, it, it, we are still standing on the foundation of Western civilization and of human civilization. And, um, and concepts like mother and father are going to be with us no matter what. And that's the last point. It's such a futile, dumb effort because it's not going to succeed. I promise you in 25 years in 50 years, people aren't going to be sending out cards on birthing person's day. You know, they're not going to say, you know, you know, not going to call their birthing person and say, Hey, as my birthing person, I just want to say, I love you birthing person. It's just not going to happen. So it's an enormous waste of time and energy. And that just, so I'll get off of this. I'm sorry. I, I could go on for more. Maybe I'll, do a different version of this in the G file, but um, the the arrogance of all of this really offends me. You know, this assumption that I have to be deferential because of a tiny cadre of people at a couple of institutions in this country have decided that this is the defining issue of our time, and that um, and that this is an incredibly morally sophisticated position. Um, and that you're a Neanderthal if you don't grasp it and agree with it. Well, I grasp it and I disagree with it, and um, uh, it just offends me that I'm it, that I'm supposed to go along with this kind of fashion. Uh, what else to talk about? All right, so uh, you know, in terms of grasping and disagreeing, um, I'm entirely on Team Millie um, in terms of this critical race theory argument that we saw on the Hill this week, I, I, we don't need to belabor it. I've had a lot to say about critical race theory. Um, but suffice it to say, I don't want them teaching critical race theory in grade schools. I don't think they should. Um, I give more leeway to state legislatures than my colleague David French does on this. Um, I think it is just a lie to say that if you don't believe in that, if you don't teach critical race theory, that means that you, don't believe you should be teaching about slavery or any of this stuff. I, you know, my most recent book, I talked at great length. I've talked, to, I've written at great length for years about how we should teach about slavery. We should teach about Jim Crow um, and all of these things because it's important to understand about the American story um, and our, our, and our capacity for self-improvement. While at the same time, I don't believe in critical race theory. I, I don't think I'm not an adherent of it. Um, but I do understand it. And that's why I'm on team, team Millie. Um, he, you know, got into this contretemps with these congressmen, um, about some class called understanding white rage at West point. And, you know, look again, I don't think this stuff should be in grade schools. Um, and I, I don't think it really should be in high schools unless it's taught the right way as a theory rather than as something that, I mean, the problem with bringing critical race theory into public schools is, first of all, they're public schools. But second of all, these are kids. And, and we're talking about, you know, my concern isn't so much that they'll teach the theory. Because I don't, I don't find the theory actually all that frightening, um, in part because I don't find it persuasive. The, the concern that I have, and I think a lot of parents have, is that they're going to be doing indoctrination, right? It's going to be much more of a sort of, Okay, now let's do our white privilege uh, um, exercises where we confess our sins. So it's going to be taught. It's not going to be so much taught as proselytized as a sort of religious thing, and that would be really bad and should be stopped. And um, you know, the mechanism by which it is stopped in schools, um, I'm 
agnostic on at this point. I mean, I, I think, again, I think David makes good points about, about trying to ban critical race theory are going to be most likely be very counterproductive, but I have no first order fundamental philosophical problem with school boards and state legislatures saying, you know, we're not going to teach kids that this country is systemically racist and yada, yada, yada. That doesn't bother me. That said, West Point's different. Look, I learned about critical race theory and, and really critical, critical, you know, feminist theory. I mean, I had more classes from, you know, uh, Catherine McKinnon and, and Michelle Foucault than I did from the Federalist Papers. And, um, I understood it, you know, they, or they, I, like, I, I, I read about it. It was explained to me. I didn't find it entirely persuasive. You know, as I said the other day, there's nothing wrong with, uh, critical race theory that can't be fixed by dividing by 10. I mean, there's a kernel of a point there about in some cases, uh, you know, on prudential questions in particular areas. Uh, but it is not the all explanatory theory. It's not the unified field theory of American civilization. It's not even, it's not even a fraction of anything like that. And, um, but like the idea that kids going to West point can't handle learning one theory among many about race in America, it just strikes me as it, that's, that's where I think this stuff turns into kind of a moral panic. You know, I mean, Millie is right. I mean, I would hope that people at West Point read Marx and Lenin and all these kinds of things and certainly read the Quran and, and Saeed Qutub and the radical Islamists because you're trying to understand the point of view of people who may be your enemy in a war. And, um, and maybe you're trying to understand other, you know, complicated things about the world. Um, or about your own country. And so the idea that you can't have a class on this stuff um, for West Point kids, West Point cadets, just strikes me as, as overwrought, particularly because I think West Point students are going to be more immune to this stuff than students of almost any other <laughs> institution of higher education, except maybe what, like the Naval Academy, right? I mean, but the, the service academies, these are people who, for various reasons, have made a pretty significant commitment to the United States of America and a serious commitment to the idea that serving and risking your life for the United States of America is a worthwhile endeavor. And the idea that one seminar, which again, I have very much doubt at West Point, <coughs> is going to be taught like some sort of indoctrination thing, um, is going to like make them say, oh my gosh, why am I fighting for this racist country? I just don't, I don't buy it. I have more faith in these kids. Um, maybe, you know, there was this congressman who was in the Green Berets who, who hated the title of it. And we got a little thing on Twitter. Fine. Okay. Maybe the, maybe the title of this class, you know, understanding white rage or something is a bad idea. I'm not sure I think it is, but I, you know, it, I think it would have been better to call a class understanding critical race theory. Um, but, uh, that's that is not something to panic about and it's not an excuse for people like matt gates to start questioning or or tucker apparently although i haven't seen the clip yet you know question the honor integrity and decency of of these guys who've both seen a lot of combat and have, have given their lives to um defending the country um i just i find the whole overreaction on 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 this front to be embarrassing um i'm pretty much in favor of like parents showing up 
at PTA meetings and, and letting people have it and saying, Hey, I don't want my kids coming home being told that they're irredeemably racist or that this country is irredeemably racist. I think that is a perfectly legitimate thing for parents to be heard on. Okay. What else? I don't know. Um, um, I was going to talk a bit about the Sheldon Whitehouse stuff. I might, I might as well start here. Might as well do a little here. I, um, I love the Sheldon Whitehouse story. Um, in kind of like a, you know, I mean, it's not quite like I want to take it to the prom and get it pregnant behind the gym. Kind of love it. I just, I, I love this story because, um, it's more like playing with a loose tooth. It hurts, but it's fun. Um, um, I personally don't really care if some snooty club in Rhode Island is falling short of a abstract diversity quota, so long as there is no official discrimination of any kind, right? I mean, I, I, I reject the idea that if you don't have institutions that look demographically exactly like the population, that that's proof of racism. That kind of thing actually is, is part and parcel of critical race theory. And I reject that. I just don't think it's true. I think, you know, um, maybe the, there are other reasons why blacks and Hispanics in Rhode Island don't want to be part of some expensive snooty beach club. I, I don't know. Um, I just don't think it's the same thing as a, as a clavern or something or some sort of neo-Nazi biker clubhouse if it falls short of having black people having no black people is kind of worrisome i'll grant you um but i don't know what i just don't know enough about the particular circumstances to say one way or the other that what what is the morally legitimate and correct number of people of color um in some club in rhode island but sheldon whitehouse does right i mean sheldon whitehouse and the people who work for him and with him in the democratic party they have very rich and complex and specific views about um, how disparate outcomes are proof of systemic racism or um, deliberate racism. Um, and I've been meaning to go back and look at some of the things he said in the past. I'm sure there, some of them are quite ridiculous. Um, and for a member of a party that has been playing every card in the deck with these, for these kinds of arguments for years, to have been put on notice that this club was problematic a long time ago and to still be a member, or I guess he just recently quit. Although I love, I love this. Apparently he said he was going to leave the club, but his wife who was on the board was going to retain membership, which is like, you know, my wife, not it's like if, if my wife belonged to a country club, we don't belong to any country clubs, by the way, but if my wife belonged to a country club, that if I resigned, that somehow this would be a real repudiation, even though, because my wife was a member, I have all the privileges of membership because they're family memberships. I mean, it's just dumb. And, um, and anyway, uh, Ryan Brown was saying that this actually would be the premise of a fantastic movie, you know, you know, sort of a trading places goes to the beach kind of thing where, um, um, you know, Sheldon Whitehouse has to get uh, minorities in the place as quickly as possible and hilarity ensues. Um, uh, you know, sort of a Tyler Perry joint. Um, I 
don't know that, you know, I will not venture into what that script would look like uh, because I don't want to traffic in, in stereotypes. But the, the point remains is that Sheldon Whitehouse deserves all of this, right? This is all entirely on him. Um, and I have zero sympathy for him in all of this because, again, you know, you can't be a member of an outspoken and fairly jackassish member of a, of a party um, that assigns bad faith and bad intention to everybody who disagrees with you that routinely plays these games about, you know, disparate uh, outcomes being proof of racism. And then having had years to do something about your membership in this club, uh, um, act as if, you know, you're being put upon. I just, I think it's delicious. And I haven't followed it as closely as I should, but um, it's enjoyable. Uh, punditry, we're not going to do much punditry here, but I think, it, you know, yesterday, we're recording this on Friday morning. Yesterday, there was, you know, uh, sort of a handshake deal on the infrastructure package with Republicans and Democrats. Um, I got to do more homework on it because I'm sure I'm going to talk about it on special report tonight. But um, I do think that if they don't get, um, if, if the Democrats pocket these concessions on, on physical infrastructure and then walk and then do human infrastructure uh, through reconciliation without any Republicans, uh, that would be, you know, nuts for republic if republicans agree to the physical infrastructure thing for like a trillion plus um without any guarantee that they won't democrats won't cram through the other trillions of dollars through reconciliation but i'm not sure they should vote for the physical infrastructure thing it's certainly a bad faith effort i'm not sure biden can get get it through but um that's not how it's supposed to work you can't have um Tense negotiations over constructing an infrastructure bill come to some sort of reasonable agreement and then say, okay, all the stuff that you didn't think was infrastructure that we negotiated out of this, we're going to throw all of those scraps into this other thing. And then we're going to use this legislative gimmick to get it done. That just feels like dirty pool to me. Um, you know, and then again, you know, everybody's in playing dirty pool these days so you know what are you gonna do um and then oh so pence apparently yesterday came out and said that you know the vice president had no power to uh unilaterally decide who's president of the united states you know and that's why he couldn't reject the electors and all that kind of stuff um i don't know i you know i'm glad he's saying it it bothers me that the only reason he's saying it is because he has to say it to deal with the pro deal with the fact that um, this election was stolen garbage um, has been allowed to fester and that Trump has been peddling it um, as a political matter. I don't know that it helps him very much. And, you know, it's sort of like, it's, it's sort of like, he, you know, it's, it's like, it's like the other kids who are on trial and sent of a woman when the, uh, panel, the, you know, the, the, the tribunal lets, you know, Chris O'Donnell or whatever that guy's name is, um, off on all charges and then says of the other kids who were charged, they deserve no credit. 
nor condemnation for anything that they did or something like that. Um, that's kind of how I feel about Pence. Uh, I'm glad he's saying this because it's better. It's better that he's telling the truth than he's not. But I think it's um, it's pretty late in the game to be saying this, and you know, and it would be more helpful. I mean, like, like I know I'm floundering here. As someone who does not much care about his presidential ambitions and cares a lot about the state of the country and even the state of conservatism and the Republican Party, um, I find it all pretty selfish, right? He's doing this now because his advisors have concluded that unless he tackles this issue heads on and tries, tries to turn a disadvantage into an advantage of some kind, he has no chance of becoming president of the United States. If he were truly and sincerely interested in doing the right thing, um, well, to give him credit, he did the right thing on January 6th. And then he kept his mouth shut for months and trying to figure out how all this was going to play out, letting Liz Cheney twist in the wind, trying to hold on to Trump people that Trump has turned on him. And um, so for me, it is at this point all political um, calculation, Machiavellian stuff, and not matters of high principle. And so I can welcome him saying this stuff. I don't think it's going to do him much good um, because the problem is, is if you believe the lie that the election was stolen, which, you know, just for the record, Trump continues to peddle to this day, um, then you're never going to forgive Pence. If you believe, as I do, that um, what Trump did was outrageous, um, he was trying to steal an election, and that his continued lying about it is one of the most deeply um, sinister and unpatriotic things that any elected official um, has, has done in American history. It may not be the single worst thing. It is really close to up there, what he's doing right now. It's disgusting. And for Pence to think that uh, he can be cute and kind of separate the various issues um, just strikes me as scheming and cowardly rather than something that, that's deserving a lot of praise. And on that front, I just don't think there's a lot of praise to go around right now um, among Republicans on any issue that touches in any way on, on Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump forces moral compromises on people. He deserves a large share of that blame, but um, so do the people who make all the compromises. And if you're making those compromises simply to get reelected, I understand it. I don't think it necessarily makes you an evil person. Um, we don't have to get into all of those issues again, but I don't admire it. And I don't think it's something that like, um, that you deserve much, much praise or honor for. It's just part the grubby part of the job. And let's just be honest, that's you're doing it for, um, for, you know, cold, calculated, cynical, you know, stay in power kind of reasons. There is no high mindedness to it whatsoever. Um, even if the country's better off with you in office than not, um, it's still something that lowers you and is grubby that you're doing. Um, if you're, if, if you're giving any of this, any oxygen or permission structure on the right, because it, it is, it's just poisonous. Um, oh, and just by the way, you know, what we're arguing about whether or not we should use the word mother or not, um, or whether it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, 
it's a signaling of oppression and bigotry to use the word mother. Um, you know, Wall Street Journal has a piece out today. People think that uh, Afghanistan will fall to the Taliban within six months after we leave. And um, I just find it, you know, it's just amazing the things that we are tearing, this country is tearing itself up in knots arguing about these abstruse, abstract, linguistic nonsense games are what are, you know, causing people to go out at each other's throats while this country has enormous problems that nobody wants to talk about. This country is doing consequential things around the world or not doing consequential things around the world that will have huge repercussions. And we don't, we just want to look away from that stuff. And instead we want to get mired down on these angels on a head of a pin stuff about, you know, the word mother. Um, I find it just really depressing and grotesque. You know, they're closing, uh, you know, a pro-democracy newspaper in Hong Kong, uh, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of women in Afghanistan are going to be going back into essentially nigh upon chattel slavery. They're going to have acid thrown on their faces if they try to go to school. We're going to see people murdered who worked with the United States. Um, we have, we're sending the signal all around the world that we are not a reliable ally. Um, China's reading this as it looks at Taiwan. And, um, and meanwhile, in the United States, we're talking about whether or not the vice president has the power to unilaterally award the election of president to whoever he chooses, whether or not the word mother is, um, offensive, um, or too constricting or insufficiently capacious to handle the multitudes of meaning that we all carry in our lives. Um, the FAA is talking about how we need to get rid of the word cockpit. Um, this is metaphorically, this is, this is, you know, music from Nero's fiddle, as far as I can tell. And it is just idiotic and depressing. And, um, I wish I had cheerier way to end this podcast, but I'm just done. So, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for putting up with me. I hope it wasn't too ranty. I know it went on for a while, but that other stuff, um, but such are the wages of podcastery. And, um, thank you all. And I'll see you next time.